Well, thank you for tuning in. Those of you just tuned in online, we're grateful that you would do that. And those that have come tonight to open God's Word. Take your Bibles and let's go to Malachi again. Malachi chapter 2, the last verse of chapter 2 is where we're going to start out. Uh, I've said a moment ago how much I appreciate Mike Gay and uh, did a great job dealing with a very difficult text last week. And we're going to pick up right where he left off. Malachi chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 17. Uh, And this is a good example, what we're going to be looking at tonight, is a good example of sometimes how the chapter divisions and sometimes even the verse divisions kind of hinder our insight. Now, the chapters were added, the verses, the numbers you see were added later after Scripture was written, hundreds of years later. And and so... uh, my, my point is simply this, when you come to chapter 2, verse 17, it really is tied into the third chapter, verses 1 through 5. It's a continuation. So you've got a chapter division there, and, and it would make you think, well, wait a minute, chapter 2, verse 17 is the end of the chapter, therefore it's the end of the thought, and that's not accurate. Uh, so chapter 2, verse 17 really sets the stage for what we're going to be reading about in chapter 3. So let me ask you this couple of questions before we read the text. Have you ever looked at your life or maybe what's going on in our country and questioned what God was doing? If you're honest, probably you'd have to say yes. Or have you ever looked at the news and wondered aloud why God hasn't done anything to address the sin and the absurdity in our culture? Or or maybe I just said it this way. Does the news ever frustrate you? Every day. (laughs) Sometimes you wonder, God, why would you allow that to happen? Or even more, God, why haven't you done something to change this or to stop this? Why would you allow them to do that? Uh, I I don't know about you, but I'm very concerned about what I see in our our country and what I see in our culture, uh, culture. And sometimes we might have those kind of thoughts like, God... Why haven't you done anything? Why, do, why haven't you addressed the sin in our country? Why haven't you addressed the absurdity in our culture? Why would you allow this? Well, that happened in Malachi's day too. The circumstances were such that some of God's people began to question why God had not responded as they thought he should. And I want to say that one more time because I want you to catch that. <clears throat> the circumstances were such that some of God's people began to question why God had not responded as they thought he should. As if they could give direction to God. And here's, here's the kicker. They became pretty vocal about their displeasure with God regarding the things that either he had done or the things that he had failed to do. Now, who they were vocal with, I'm not exactly sure. It doesn't exactly say, but it does indicate in the text we're going to be looking at that they had become very vocal about their displeasure with God. Why God had allowed certain things, why God had not stopped certain things, why God had not done what they thought God ought to do. In fact, this is how Malachi begins in chapter 2, verse 17, tonight's text. Malachi begins with a very strong statement. Malachi says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. I've been chewing on that for a day or two. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, I want you to talk to me a little bit tonight. 
So the word wearied, what does that indicate to you? You have wearied the Lord. What, what does that word wearied indicate to you? Growing tired? Huh? Worn him out. Here's a question for you. Does God grow tired? I, I, I see some... No, 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 no. no. <clears throat> so what would that mean? You have wearied the Lord with your words. And let me just say, of course God does not grow weary because, at least in a physical sense, because God doesn't have a body. And in fact, Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. So God does not grow tired. God does not grow weary like we do. So what does it mean? You have wearied the Lord with your words. Talk to me. What does that mean to you? You have wearied the Lord. Not physically tired. What does that mean? You've wearied him with your words. Frustrated. <clears throat> huh? Disgusted. Huh? Okay. You know, basically what God, what Malachi was saying, God is tired of hearing your griping. You've wearied the Lord with your words. God is tired of hearing his people griping. Now, if you've ever had kids, you know exactly what this is like. You ever had two kids and they just keep going at one another and keep going at one another and keep going at one another and eventually you, you lose and you say, I've had enough, stop it, don't talk to each other. Don't you look at her, don't you look at him. Don't talk to one another. Any parents say, yeah, that, that, that's my home. Okay, good, good. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Grandparents could do that too. Or, have you, have you said this? And I, I've said this. My, I put my hand in the air. Have you watched the news and then you said something out loud like, I'm so tired of hearing about, and you could fill in the blank. I saw that on Twitter recently. There's, there's a lot of controversy in Southern Baptist Convention right now. And we're leading into uh, the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville in, in June. And all kinds of stuff is on Twitter. Very discouraging, very disgusting. Uh, preachers just yang 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 at one another, you know. Uh, just very disheartening to hear. And I saw one preacher that he posted, I'm so tired of. And then he put what, it, what he was so worn out about. In the book of Malachi... Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Which brings me to an interesting thought, the idea that God is listening. God's listening. You've wearied the Lord with your words. <clears throat> in fact, I want to give you a couple of scriptures. Put your finger in Malachi there. We're going to come back to it. And go over to the left and find the book of Psalms and find Psalm 139. <clears throat> Psalm 139. The idea that, that here's why we wearied the Lord with our words is because the Lord knows every word we've used and sometimes we do not use the right words. Sometimes we're griping and complaining and we need to keep in mind that Almighty God is listening to what we say. And the psalmist, David, wrote Psalm 139, and this is what he said in verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. 
before a word is even on my tongue. God, you know it completely. And it's not just that, God, you know what I said after I said it. You heard me. But you actually know what I was going to say before it even formed on my tongue. I'll give you another example. In the New Testament, go over to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Uh, you might want to underline two words in that, in that verse. The word nothing and the word everything. The writer of Hebrews is making the case, nothing, like in nothing, in all creation, is hidden from God's sight. And then to underline that, looking at it from, from another angle, everything, as in everything, is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, how does that apply to Malachi? Well, let's go back to that Old Testament book again. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, going back to chapter 2, verse 17. Malachi makes this statement to the people of God you have wearied the Lord with your words God's listening he's heard what you said God was literally tired of hearing the people complaining and griping and acting like God is unfair they're going to make the accusation in just a moment that God is unfair God's not treating us like he should and he's treating others in a way that he shouldn't God is unfair. And God heard that, and he heard that, and he heard that, and he heard that, and he heard that. They wearied the Lord with their words. Now, of course, the people's response to all of this was, how? Look at the text. How have we wearied him, you ask? Tell us how we've done that. Tell us what we've done. And look what it says. By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. That is a strange statement, isn't it? Look at it again. All who do e- This is what they were saying. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, another statement, where is the God of justice? They had wearied God by saying that God must really enjoy evil because he wasn't doing anything about it. He must really enjoy evil because he hasn't done anything to stop these evil people. That's what they were saying. Or they were also saying, where is the God of justice? If he really is a God of justice, then why isn't he being a God of justice? And see, the words were very cynical. The words were very skeptical. The words were very negative. To the point that Malachi says, listen, you're about to wear God out with these words. Their question really was more of a complaint than it was anything else. The words were really a complaint. Look at the text again, verse 17. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Otherwise, how can you explain what's happening? Or, where's the God of justice? But now listen to me. Those listening online. These complaints were rooted really in their experience. 
there's some history behind these questions and these complaints that they had with God. You see, here's what had happened. Uh, the people of God had come back to the land of God or the promised land. Remember, they'd been in, in slavery, they'd been in bondage, they'd been in the Babylonian captivity, and eventually they were allowed to come back to Israel, to the land of of promise, and so they'd come back to the land, they had rebuilt the temple, they had restored worship in Jerusalem, and they were waiting on the blessings of God, and they did not materialize the way they thought they should. <clears throat> they remembered some of the prophets, like Haggai and Zechariah, and how that they prophesied prosperity, and, and how the nation of God would flourish again, and, and they waited. And they waited. And in fact, about a hundred years passed from Haggai and Zechariah. About a hundred years passed, and still a lot of those promises of the prosperity of God and the prosperity of their land, still it was unfulfilled. As far as they were concerned, God seemed to be an absentee God. An absentee God who was totally unconcerned about them. And so very cynically, very hard-heartedly, they said, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and He is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now, to make matters even worse, to make matters even worse, some of the pagan nations around them were flourishing a lot more than they were. The nations who, who didn't claim God, the, the nations who didn't know God, the nations who wanted nothing to do with God, were flourishing while they were sometimes suffering. And so they're trying to understand this. They're trying to come to terms with, how do you explain this, that, that we came back from captivity to the land of God, and we rebuilt the city of God, and we rebuilt, or we built the temple of God, and we restored worship to God. And yet the people outside, the pagan nations outside of the Holy Land, are prospering more than we are. Where is the God of justice? Where are the promises that the prophets of old talked about? <clears throat> now, I think this is a good time for me to pause for a moment and make this important point. And I want you to hear this. There's a difference between questioning God's methods and criticizing them. See, you can question God. You can go to God with your questions. You can say, God, I don't understand. And God, why is this? And, and, and if you read your Bible, you see that people did that a lot. Psalms especially. There are lots of times where the psalmist is questioning God. Job certainly had a period of time in his life where he was questioning God. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, had a time where he was, uh, he was really questioning God. And to kind of the... The greatest example of all was even the Lord Jesus had a time in his life when he was questioning God. Garden of Gethsemane, is it possible for this cup to pass from me? When he's hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So questioning God is one thing. Criticizing God's methods is quite differently. That really the issue is, it's okay to question God, but will you still trust Him? So when you go back to those examples that I gave you in Psalms, the psalmist, he was questioning God, but at the end he was always trusting God. Job, Jeremiah, certainly Jesus. 
They all had times when they were questioning God, but they always came back to declaring their trust in God. So this is so relevant for our, for our time today. Let, let me, let's just be real personal, very practical. When you look at culture today, and you see how quickly culture today is decaying, it's easy to kind of say, God, why aren't you judging them? When you look at the sickening corruption in politics today, and I'm not talking about one side of the aisle or the other, I'm just talking about the sickening corruption in politics in general, it's easy to say, God, why would you allow that? To echo the words of Malachi, where is the God of justice? Watch this. Because if I were God, this is what I would do. And that was what was happening in the days of Malachi. If I were God, this is what I would do. And they began to question and to doubt and to criticize God. And in Malachi's day, they really wanted God to do something. And here's what it was. They wanted God to show up and get the sinners. God, you you just need to do something about all these sinners. All these pagan nations around us, they're prospering. All these pagan nations around us, they don't honor you. And we're trying to do that, and yet we're suffering more than they are. It's the age-old question of, why do the godly suffer and the, and the wicked prosper? Why is that? <clears throat> God, you need to show up, and you need to get the sinners. And God says, okay, I will. I'll start with you. You are my people. You ought to know better. I, I, found, I find it interesting that Uh, When it comes to justice, we want everybody else to get justice except us. We want mercy. We want grace. But all those other sinners, they need justice. God needs to get them. So the first part of chapter 3, when we finally come to chapter 3, is really a response to the charges that are raised in chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to make two points tonight. In the remaining time that we have. Here's the first point. God always sends a messenger to us. When we're struggling, God always sends a messenger to us. And so here's how chapter 3 opens. Remember now, it really is a response to chapter 2 verse 17. Chapter 3 opens with these words. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Do you remember what the name Malachi means? Malachi means my messenger. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he's not referring to Malachi. In chapter 3, verse 1, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. He's actually referring to John the Baptist. Now, how do we know that this is a reference to John the Baptist? Uh, When we've been in our Sunday night class on how to read the Bible like a seminary student, one of the principles that I try to remind you of is, is let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's one of the greatest ways to determine what a, what a verse means is, is if you can find a cross-reference to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so with that in mind, uh, let's read this verse one more time and then I'm going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. 400 or so years later, a little over 400 years later, Jesus 
is speaking in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7 through 10. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. And he's talking now about the Old Testament. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus was quoting Malachi 3.10. He, he was, uh, or 3.1 rather. He was quoting Malachi 3.1 and pointing out John the Baptist is a fulfillment of the promise made in Malachi 3.1. Now let, just, let me just call your attention to the fact that Malachi 3.1 was written about 400 years before the New Testament days. 400 years before the book of, of Matthew. And <clears throat> the promise is that there will come one who will be given the unique privilege of presenting the messenger, the messenger, to Israel. And it says in chapter 3, verse 1, he will prepare the way. Look at the text. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. God was going to send one who would prepare the way, who would clear the way, who would make it possible for Jesus to be known. And that was the work of John the Baptist, urging people to repent of their sins, turning to God. Uh, that was his, his role, was to clear the way, to clear the path for the one to come. So God always sends a messenger to us. But number two, this is where we need to dig in for a little while. God will one day send a judge. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to go back and try to understand what it's saying. How God will one day send a judge. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their, wa- of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. God, why don't you do something about these sinners? Why don't you come get these sinners? I will, and I'll start with you. And I want you to look in chapter 3, verse 1, and look where he says he will come. Chapter 3, verse 1, where does he say he will come to? When, uh, when John the Baptist comes to clear the way, the messenger, capital M messenger, is going to come. And where will he start? Temple. Isn't that interesting? I am going to come deal with the sinners. But I'm not going to go to Caesar's palace. I'm not going to go to the house of Pilate. 
going to go to the temple. Because you're my people. And you should know better. And so I'm going to deal with sinners and I'm going to start in the temple. You see, a loving father doesn't discipline the kids down the street. Now you may want to sometimes. But a loving father doesn't discipline the kids down the street because they're not his. A father disciplines his own children. Likewise, the discipline of a heavenly father begins in his own household with his own children. So he says, when I come to deal with the sinners, I'm going to start in the temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, let me pause here to say there is a debate a little bit of a debate or a discussion might be a better word about which coming this is referring to. Because look at the verse again. <clears throat> See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's clearly John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Let me pause there to say I really believe that this is referring to the first coming of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus, if you will, the first time he comes into this world. He's referring to that first coming that is primarily focused on grace and mercy because he refers to him as the messenger of the covenant. And Jesus was coming that first time to fulfill all the Old Testament promises and the covenant uh, of the Old Testament. So Jesus is the messenger of the covenant coming the first time to establish this covenant that was promised in the Old Testament. So verse, for that verse, I believe it's referring to the first coming of Jesus. But then in verse 2, it, I believe it's referring to the second coming of Jesus. In verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? The wording there seems to indicate that this is going to be a day that it's going to be hard for anyone to endure. It's going to be hard for anyone to withstand. In fact, it says, who can stand when he appears? So that doesn't appear to refer to his first coming. It sounds more like his second coming. Who can stand when he appears? Now, in his second coming, you know, but let me remind you, that his second coming will be a time when he comes unexpectedly, suddenly, and the purpose of his second coming will be judgment. Judgment of the sinners and to purify his people. Now, there's two words that I want you to see uh, that, that I think are, are very interesting words. Um, if you'll look at them, it's in verse 1. <clears throat> then suddenly the Lord, look carefully at that, at that name, capital L, small case, O-R-D. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You see the difference? Those are two key words that you and I need to grasp before we move on. The word Lord with a capital L, small case O-R-D, is the Hebrew word Adonai. And it really is, is focusing on His power, His authority. We, would might, we might translate it master. I believe it is a reference to Jesus in this context. Adonai. But then you come to the end of the verse and you see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. 
That is the covenant name for God. You might want to write these two names beside that. Yahweh or Jehovah. I don't want to get too deep into this, but Yahweh is the covenant name for God. It was the name for which the Hebrew people, they felt it was so sacred that they wouldn't even say the name Yahweh. And when they wrote it out in the Hebrew text, they would write it out without vowels. It's the covenant name for God. Uh, I I don't mean this to be disrespectful. Uh, The word Lord, the first word of the Lord, is, is almost the common name for God. And the word Lord the second time is the covenant name for God. The first word, Lord, is more of a title. He's master. He's ruler. But the second name, Lord or Lord Almighty, is the covenant name for God. And it signifies His eternal nature. He's eternal. He is the great I Am. Remember what uh, He said to Noah? Well, when they ask me who is sending me, what will I say? When they say, what God has sent you, what will I say? Tell them the great I Am, Jehovah, has sent you. Now, you also see it says Lord, and then the next phrase there is Almighty. It's another name for God, the the name Almighty, Sabaoth. I may not be saying that correctly, uh, but it's very similar to the word Sabbath, but it means the Lord who is, and we've talked about this earlier, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the great armies. It's talking about His power. He is the great I Am. He is the eternal great God. So, with that context, let me read a few more verses and then we'll close it out with a lesson for all of us. Then suddenly the Lord, Adonai, Jesus, you are seeking, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come. Says, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Talking about his second coming. For he will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. He's going to come to cleanse the world of sin. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. He's, he's coming back so that the Levites, his Hebrew people, can be purified and made usable again, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. When you were growing up, did your parents tell you about the former years? You know, when they were young, they walked to school and holes in their shoes, cardboard in their shoes, they walked uphill both ways, two feet of snow. Former years. We like to talk about the good old days. God says there's coming a time when we're going to, to, I'm going to do such a work that people will worship me as they did in the former years. And then verse 5, and I want to close with this. So I will come near to you for judgment. 
You want me to do something about the sinners? I'm going to. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the question in chapter 2, verse 17? The question in chapter 2, verse 17 is, where is the God of justice? And the answer is, he's coming. He's coming. I would close with this lesson for all of us to remember. Don't weary the Lord with your words, but seek to honor the Lord with your life. That's a good word for all of us to hang on to. Remembering that God hears everything I say. Don't weary the Lord with your words. Seek to honor the Lord with your life. The people of Malachi's day had gotten that backwards. They were indeed wearying the Lord with, with their words. They were not honoring the Lord with their life. And God says, I know. And you folks are wearing me out. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be one of those folks that it's like, you know what? He used to be good. He used to walk with me. He used to listen to me. He used to obey me. I don't want to be the person who used to do that. I want to be the person that's not wearying the Lord with my words, but I'm still trying to honor the Lord with my life. I don't know about you. The older I get, the more I want to do that. Anybody else, you feel that way? It's like, the older I get, the more I want to honor the Lord with my life. Pray about that. Father, thank you for reminding us that you are indeed Lord. Lord Almighty, and there is a day you're coming, and there is a day that you will deal with all the injustice that we keep pointing to, all the problems that we keep wringing our hands about, all the things that that keep us tied up in knots. One day, the Lord Almighty will deal with it. But in the meantime, God, would you do your work in our lives? Work in our lives in such a way that we're seeking to honor you with our lives and seeking to honor you with our words. Seeking to honor you in every way that we live and every day that we live. Thank you for the promise and the hope that is found in your word. Thank you for the examples that are there to show us how to live. Help us to follow that this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you so much.